The talk tonight is on opening to the Four Noble Truths, a journey to awakening. But first I'd like to tell you a story about the four heavenly messengers. These are messengers that gave some uh, insight to the Buddha during his awakening, during his journey. 2,500 years ago, in a small kingdom of the Shakyas, in a place what is now the border between Nepal and India, in the foothills of the Himalayas, there was born a prince, and that prince was named by his father Siddhartha, which means he whose wishes are fulfilled. And this prince was the Buddha-to-be of our time. At the time of his birth, the wise men of that time foretold or prophesied that this little Siddhartha would be either a world monarch or he would renounce the world and become a Buddha. Buddha meaning fully realized being or fully awakened being, human being. Since the king wanted an heir so much for his kingdom and also was very happy of the prophecy that this would be a world monarch, not only of his kingdom. He did everything possible to assure that Siddhartha would become that. He contrived to surround Siddhartha with pleasures of all kinds. He spared no cost. He spared no energy. He surrounded Siddhartha with luxury, delights, everything that was pleasurable from the time of his birth. And the king did his best to keep it this way so that no disagreeable or unpleasant surroundings would come in front of Siddhartha, anything that would cause his unhappiness. Siddhartha grew up. He married a beautiful woman. And at the time, he had three palaces even, one for hot weather, one for cold weather, one for the rainy season. He was surrounded very much with royalty and the things that concerned royalty. And one day the thought had struck him very deeply that he had not seen anything outside of this royalty. And he began to wonder what it was like outside of this place that was so protected, which his father and mother contrived to keep him full of pleasures and distractions. So he asked his charioteer, Chana, to prepare to bring him to town the next day. And since he was grown up and married and on his own, his parents could not control him as much. And so his father and mother dreaded this very much because they knew this was a sign of the prophecy unfolding. The king was determined to cover everything up that might be unpleasant in his sight or uh, in his experience. And so he contrived to have all of the beggars, the infirm, the aged, all of those that might cause displeasure or any kind of unhappiness to Siddhartha hidden. And the roads were strewn with perfume and flowers. Only the young and beautiful and the able-bodied were allowed in the streets at that time. So. All the preparations were taken to cover up all of this unpleasant surrounding by his powerful father. 
But the Buddha-to-be's fate was more powerful. And so he rode into town on his chariot with his charioteer, Chana. They were off to the village, and there was a cool breeze, and the mountains rose behind them. It was early in the morning, so the sun shone and had a golden cast on the sky, it is said. When they reached the village, there were garlands and flowers and crowds of happy people, children laughing, all by order of the king. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a wrinkled and toothless old man appeared. He appeared like a cloud. His cloth, his, uh, his clothing was like rags, all torn and tattered. His body was bent and twisted. He was blinking blindly. He was a very pitiful sight, especially for someone like Siddhartha, who had never seen such a sight. Then the apparition was gone again, just like a cloud. And Siddhartha asked his charioteer, what is this sight? I've never seen anything like this. And Chana said, that is an old man, sire. And the Buddha asked, will I become like this? And Chana said, perhaps so, sire. All people become like this when they get old. So he went on. And within the happiness of the crowd, there was another apparition that no one else seemed to see except for Siddhartha and Chana. It was a sick man, staggering with sweat. He was wild-eyed and thin. He was coughing up some awful cough, and he was feverish. He seemed tormented. So Siddhartha asked Chana, was he born like this? And Chana said, no, sire, he became like this during his life. So the Buddha, very pensive, the Buddha-to-be, very pensive, went on. And then a man on a wooden board who was very still, laying very still on the board, went by him. This appeared again as an apparition. It was carried by people crying and wailing. He was brought to a bed of fire. They put him in the bed of fire, and he did not move. And so Siddhartha asked, why the fire is so hot, the man does not wake up from his sleep? And Shana said, he's not sleeping, sire, he is dead. And Siddhartha said, does this happen to everyone? And Shana said, there is no one that I know of who has grown old or sick that it hasn't happened to, sire. So he continued on his journey through the village. And on his way home, he came across a wandering monk. And this wandering monk was very peaceful. He had a serene gaze, and his gait was very noble, peaceful. He was the last heavenly messenger to the Buddha to be. And it gave him a very powerful sight, a very powerful inspiration of what he could aspire to and what his parents had dreaded. 
So these four heavenly messengers connected the prince to countless lifetimes of previous practice. And all of that practice blossomed in him during that time that these four heavenly messengers were sent to him to give him this message. It deepened in him a sense of inquiry. Very deeply he began to ask, what is the nature of this body and mind? What is the nature of suffering? What are the forces of this body and mind, of this universe? What is the cause of these forces? Is there an end to this? How do we come to that end? What leads to peace and happiness? This kind of inquiry was with the Buddha very deeply during that time. And so the final part of his journey began. And his deepest commitment to know the truth was born at that time, the very deepest commitment of his practice. Each one of us has our own stories, our own deep commitment, our own heavenly messengers. And sometimes they're not so heavenly. So sometimes our messengers, even when they come from heaven, don't seem so heavenly. And there is a great Indian, uh, East Indian epic called the Mahabharata. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. And within that, there's a question. What is the most wondrous thing in the world, is the question. The answer is, that everyone around us is growing old and dying, but somehow they think it will not happen to them. So this denial was occurring around those days and those parts too. So when these messengers come to us, they are a call for us to awaken also. Our story or our messengers may not be exactly the same as the Buddha's, or they may not come in the same kind of timing or the same kind of intensity. Sometimes our messengers are sweet, and our opening is sweet and heavenly. Sometimes it's difficult. But how can we open in a way that doesn't just open when it's sweet, that doesn't just open when it's not difficult. How can we come to face all of this? In our lives and more subtly, subtly, deep in our practice here in retreat, when all the props and diversions are taken away from us and we're given nothing but the essentials, we come face to face with a few realities. And those realities concern these truths. A different way of saying the first noble truth of suffering is that we all have this universal wound or longing. All of us have this. It's a long for a kind of union with life. Somehow we feel separate or incomplete to one degree or another. And we need or we want more to complete it or to feel at one 
with the universe, with life, with someone we love, with ourselves. We ourselves may feel fractured. Or if we already have something that's satisfying, maybe we, we fear that we'll lose it. We rarely have a happiness or satisfaction that's complete. And we never have this that's long-lasting, that's permanent. Life isn't always what we expect it to be or what we want it to be. These are different ways of saying this truth of suffering, this first noble truth. We don't like to talk about suffering. It's very difficult. But we must face it in order to know life completely. It's easy to see in our daily lives it's our nature of being human. It's not a sin. It's not a disgrace. It's just the nature of our lives of being human. It's just that we can learn to experience a peace and happiness beyond all of this, even while we are human. We have this capacity. We don't have to wait for another lifetime. It's very possible. In this very life, it's possible. In our daily life, we can see that we can spend a lot of time building up our bank account or our property, things we own, or love, or romance, recognition, more CDs, maybe. Or maybe we want less, even if we're not the kind of person who does that. Maybe we want to simplify our life. Simply because of that, we're not satisfied, because we want to simplify. We want less. There's no contentment that's really lasting. It's so subtle sometimes. Last year, um, in December, I went to Vancouver to give a talk uh, in Vancouver, a weekend retreat. And I was staying at Mary's house, our manager, and she said, we went through her garden, and she said, that's um, bergamot. That the, the flower that grows there is bergamot. And I love Earl Grey tea, which is this, the um, sort of perfume in bergamot, the flower. And so I kept thinking about this for a long time. Someday I'll see that bergamot flower. Someday I'll see it. And so Mary brought me the flower to this retreat. I, I didn't think I'd see it for a long time because I wasn't scheduled to go there again until December. So when she gave it, I just, I just had so much pure happiness. It was really wonderful. It was like a very pure kind of happiness in the moment. A lot of gratitude. And so I put it in the office, and Mary keeps saying, make tea out of it, make tea out of it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to, it's not really wilting yet, so I don't, I don't want to touch it, you know. I just kind of want to keep it the way it is. And it's so pretty. And so today I was looking at it, and my, this pure happiness was tinged a bit because I started to realize that I just didn't want it to die. It was so pretty, and it's, it's so, it has a, such a um, heavenly scent. And so that kind of pure happiness was tinged with this not wanting it to die. 
this holding on to how it is right now. So you see how subtle it can get, how subtle we can have the moment tinged by wanting, by a kind of attachment, that the happiness can so subtly turn into some kind of suffering. It wasn't that I was crying about it or anything, but it was not a very pure kind of contentment of just being able to see the flower, enjoy the flower. It can be very subtle. So to understand all of this more deeply, we can't really look always outside of ourselves, although we can get a lot of insight from those experiences. How does it touch us in each moment? For all of us, um, and Steve and I are not excluded from this, we all sit here and we get a pain in the back or a pain in the knee. And because we're quite human and this unpleasantness arises and then we don't like it, we're uncomfortable, we want to move. Moment to moment this is happening. And your practice is asking you to see this. See this for yourselves. Don't take anybody's word for it. It seems so trite, but it's so profound. Or we get bored. We want something else to happen. Maybe we start thinking, well, I'll be happy once I can have lunch. Or... (laughs) 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 Or once... As soon as I can take a nap, I'll be okay. (laughs) You know, it's it's not enough just, okay, we've got the birds singing, we've got a beautiful room to sit in, people are supporting us. Uh, You know, we travel for miles to come and and help you to do this, and uh, we suffer along with you. The cooks make these delicious meals. No, no, it's not enough, you know. (laughs) I'll be happy when I can go out for my walk. I'll finally open to life when I can eat my lunch. I'll finally open when I take a nap. Then everything will be okay. It never seems to be okay just right now, or it hardly seems to be okay. So maybe we say something that you don't like, and so you close down, shut down, or say, that's not right. No negative reaction. It's okay, you know, that that we do that. But the point is just that we're never really happy. Or if we like it, we want more. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like this metta. I'm going to keep going on it. Or, you know, maybe the opposite's true, too. So what, here what we try to do is we cultivate this kind of non-judgmental awareness so that we can open to each moment. We don't have to get tangled in what's happening in the moment, whether we like it or dislike it. It's really hard to do to kind of have this pure being with the moment. So in practice, over and over again, it's relentless. Over and over, moment to moment, Finally, maybe we get the picture in a profound way. Bit by bit, we get glimpses of it. We brought ourselves to this voluntary initiation. 
voluntarily. You know, maybe it's not so voluntary after a day and we want to go home. But here we are. And if we reflect on all the wise women and men who have had anything useful to say about life, they've all gone through some kind of initiation. They've earned their wisdom or respect. So, you know, how about all of us? Are we going to continue to take it through secondhand knowledge? By reading books or just listening over and over to other people's experiences? Or are we going to do it for ourselves? By opening to what's happening in our practice. Joan Halifax, who's a writer and deep ecologist, and uh, she kind of combines Buddhism with um, uh, American Indian philosophy, calls it a sacred catastrophe, this opening, this initiation. <laughs> so we begin to start asking questions for ourselves. You know, it's really hard. We sit here and it's really hard. It's not all that great. When we thought we were going to come here, we thought, gee, it's going to be wonderful, quiet, peaceful. But the, you know, the blare of our mind, the noise of our mind is worse than being in Grand Central Station sometimes. <laughs> How do we turn it off? What's the cause of all this? Does it ever end? How does it end? What struck me so deeply about the Buddhist teachings were its completeness. The Buddha not only pointed the way to peace and happiness, but he also illumined the darkness. He helped to show us what leads to unhappiness also. He really wanted us to see that too. I didn't like this at first. I didn't like to acknowledge this dukkha or unhappiness part at first. You know, of course, I thought to myself, this is why I'm here. But I, as I practiced more and more, I knew that there was benefit in me facing it more and more fully. And in retrospect, I can say that I still have a long ways to go in my practice, but so far, I know that it's helped me to live life more fully. Not only do I open to what I like, my life is fuller now. The darkness and light are both part of my life. I can open to both, but I don't have to get identified or caught in either one. I can live in the current of the river of my karma. And for the most part, it can be okay. As I open more deeply, more strength comes. The, one of the beauties of the practice is we become more mindful. Mindfulness brings with it equanimity, which helps us to face all that comes. Sometimes equanimity is likened to a mountain that takes the rain, that takes the heat of the sun, that takes the wind, that just takes it all. Not like a doormat, 
but in some majestic way. And we learn through this practice how to respond with wisdom and compassion. And as mindfulness deepens and we open more and more to all of life, a patience grows and endurance grows. Life becomes okay as it is. And how we face life and respond to life becomes more and more filled with wisdom. Not that our journeys are ever complete, but at least we know it's deepening. We're growing more wise as we grow more mindful. There's a, a quote by C.G. Jung, uh, who is a, a recent uh, philosopher and psychologist. It's very nice. I like it very much. And he says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And as we sit here in the practice, this is what we do. We bring lightness to the darkness. When anger arises, we're cultivating bringing mindfulness to it. Mindfulness has a quality of having lightness, light, like an illumination, brings light to the mind. It lights up the field of awareness. It doesn't allow us to hold on to the anger. That's its nature. So we're developing a different relationship with life, with whatever comes in each moment. It's not just that we're illuminating the darkness, but that we are deconditioning the anger and reconditioning the patterns of our life to face each moment with mindfulness, with just pure awareness. From that pure awareness, we can begin to lead our lives in the way that we're patterned, in the way that we're conditioned, anger arises or something arises that is unpleasant. Then we don't like it. Then maybe anger arises. So ensuing that anger could be some very unskillful words or actions, even more anger. So what we do in this practice here is we decondition that anger. We're replacing that anger with mindfulness, with pure awareness. So now when anger arises or unpleasantness arises or dislike arises what, at whatever level, at whatever form, in whatever form, we can bring mindfulness to that. We can bring pure, non-judgmental awareness to that. And from that non-judgmental awareness, we can access the wisdom part of our mind to respond to life from that point, instead of from our old conditioned patterns. My teacher always says that in the family of mindfulness, many other good qualities are around, like patience, endurance, uh, the ability to see clearly, the ability to respond more clearly. It's like the same flock of birds. So we're deconditioning and reconditioning our lives. From that place of mindfulness, we can reach, uh, we can respond to life more wisely, we can also reach the deepest peace, the peace that doesn't depend on the conditions of this world.
So this kind of opening to the first noble truth of suffering led me towards a true spirituality in my life, I would say. It gave me a deep commitment to know the truth, not just to know it in a church, but to know it in my heart. And not because someone else was saying it or someone else had written about it a thousand years ago or 2,500 years ago, not even because the Buddha said so, but because I knew so from my own experience, gave me the commitment to do that. What drew me most to the practice also was a possibility for that peace. Because when I began to practice, I could see moment to moment if I applied this awareness, there could be some momentary peace. And maybe that kind of peace I could bring more into my life by cultivating more and more awareness. Uh, my, my own story of how this awakened me is um, not quite like the Buddha's, but in some ways it was. I was born into um, a relatively poor family, but I married into a very wealthy political family in the Philippines. And uh, I had my first child in California, in San Francisco, I was very young. I had just turned 20. And, and my, it, it's sort of a patriarchal society, and my father-in-law asked us to come back home. He was a politician. And so we did, and I brought the baby with us, of course. And so as I got off the plane, the, um, the nurse was at, at, the, pl at the bottom of the, uh, the stairs of the plane and uh, the limousine and everything to pick us up. And so I handed the, the baby to the nurse. And I didn't have the baby to take care of anymore. That was the custom in that family, in that level of society. And so we proceeded to go home, and uh, the baby went into a nursery, which was near our room. And I was sort of, I didn't know what to do now. I was twiddling my thumbs, and my whole purpose in life was taken away from me, almost. And I was too young to know what to do. And so um, I, I tried sometimes to like mop the floor or wash the dishes, but they, they didn't want me to do that. They said, it's not proper for you to do that. And, uh, and tried to sit sometimes with the driver in the front seat and got scolded. and was told I must sit in the back. And it was very, very different life. But I, I tried to adjust. And I uh, had an unlimited bank account. And I could have dresses and shoes and every, as much as I wanted. And I could, um, I, could uh, I had a, a driver and a Mercedes Benz and two gardeners and six maids. <laughs> I know it seems ridiculous. It seems like somebody else's life when I tell it now. <laughs> so I was twiddling my thumbs, and just to make it a little more interesting, my father-in-law had just retired as uh, the, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and he was the head of the House uh, 
for a long time, 24 years. And um, his son was a senator and was running for vice president with Benigno Aquino, who got shot, uh, who got assassinated. And I, he was at that time appointed to be head of the central bank or one of the heads of Central Bank. And I was twiddling my thumbs. I had nothing to do. So I said, could I please have a job? You know, I would like to have a job. And he said, OK, I'll appoint you in the Central Bank. So I was appointed to, I was appointed to work in the Central Bank. This, this was all my good karma. After that, it goes downhill fast. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I would sit in the in the back of the. I'd get in the car, you know, and um, I'd get in the in the Mercedes, and the and then the maid would bring me something to eat on a platter if I hadn't eaten yet. And I'd only go on Fridays because that was payday. <laughs> this, this is really true. And 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 you got cash at the central bank because you. Um, you know, that's where they got the cash out into the, so you got the new bills. And so my driver, it wasn't martial law yet, and my driver had a 45. It was showing in his, it would show, you know, in his, he, would, he didn't have a holster, it was just kind of in his belt. And the maid came with me. So I would get out, the maid would open the door, and put up the umbrella, and all the guards in the front of the central bank would run to me and carry everything I had. <laughs> and then they would escort me up to my office where I would be given something to eat. Again, I would be offered tea, and everybody would come and offer me something to eat, and the paymaster would come and give me my pay. <laughs> telling you a little bit of it, you know, it was totally, it was a totally outrageous life. <laughs> Imelda Marcos hated me <laughs> because I kind of looked like her at that time in a way. So, and besides her husband was an arch enemy of um, our family at that time. So we, um, I got my pay, went back down into the car, you know, after, and then I was driven home. I, I didn't have to go to work till about 10 and waited for the paymaster to arrive. And then I left, you know. <laughs> and uh, during a certain portion of my life there, we had license plates that signified that you were a governmental family. So if you went through, this is how it is in the Philippines and in India and Malaysia and all those places. If they know who you are, they stop the traffic and they let you through. And so it, it was really quite a life and I was very, very young. So all of this, all of this. But then we would pass by the beggars, you know, the, and, the, and the prostitutes who were only 10 years old. They were trying to make a living, you know. And they would rent these babies that would hang on people's backs. And at the stoplights or whenever there was heavy traffic, they'd all ascend on you. And they'd, you know, they'd ask for, um, for money. They'd, they'd ask for something. And at first, I didn't know. And my heart was just wrenched. That was the beginning of my, you know, th these, these were my heavenly messengers within all of that. And, and, you know, there was much, much more of this, 
dramatic high society life. Within all of that, there, my heart would just wrench. I'd go down the streets and I'd say, I have all of this and I can't understand it. There are these people that, and they, they need, but there were so many of them, you know, I just couldn't help them all. And I, um, once, for the first time, I, I, took some coins out of my purse, whatever I had, and I started to open the window and my driver turned back and yelled at me and he says, no, senora, don't do that, senora, he said in, in Tagalog. And I, so I was just wondering what's happening and I just put my hand out the window and my, my arm and my hand were like torn. It was scratched to bits of all the beggars trying to get the money. And so still not learning my lesson, went to the market another time. And the driver with the gun, you know, with the 45. And I wanted to be useful, you know. I didn't just want to hang around and order my water or something to come to me. And um, went to the market and the, the bakers would come and, and um, I'd start to take out my wallet with the maid and the, <laughs> the maid would say, cover me up and say, don't do that, don't do that. And the, the driver would say, and then all these people would come. And once the driver took his gun out and fired it in the air, and he said, get to the car. And so I ran to the car. Anyway, this was the kind of life I had. And all these people were, were my messengers. And on the day I gave birth to my last child that I had there, on the way home. When I heard the story of the Buddha, I remembered this one particular messenger. When I heard the story of the four messengers, I saw this woman laying in the street with her baby. And I was on my way home with my new baby. And the other circumstances of my life were awful, though the, um, my husband had left. He had had a second wife, and I gave birth, and I was alone. I was going home alone with the driver and the maid. And the, there was this woman on the street, and I saw the baby crawling away into the street. So I said, stop the car, you know. Uh, and um, they, you know, oh, no, what is she up to now? So got out, and I, <coughs> the baby was so hungry. The baby was so hungry. And so, uh, and the mother showed me her breasts. Her two breasts were like full of cancer. It was, you know, there were gross all over. And she said, I can't feed my baby, she said to me in Tagalog. And my baby's so hungry and nobody. And my heart was just like somebody had ripped my, my chest apart and my heart was just strewn on that street. And so I said, uh, uh, take, let's take the baby and, and the woman. So I had my baby in one hand and that other baby in the other. We went home and, and we brought the woman and I got scoldings because you don't know what this woman and the baby are bringing home. But anyway, I saw to it that they were taken care of um, and had hospitalization and everything. <coughs> but these were my messengers. These were the messengers in my life that brought me to this deep kind of commitment to know the truth, very deep. Not long after that, I left the Philippines, and I left with my three children alone, and it was a very difficult life. And somehow I was brought to be in a retreat, and in that retreat came Manindra. It was his first time to America, 
he was my first teacher and he was like that monk in the story he was so peaceful and he had such a sort of majestic noble air about him in his lightness and happiness and so I said to myself maybe it's possible for me I make this commitment maybe it's possible so bit by bit we come to accept the truth of our wounds you know this deep wound that I had that I felt so um, separate from life somehow that there was something incomplete about my life this deep longing for peace this feeling that I needed to um, merge with something and I think sometimes that's what is perhaps in a spiritual way behind this first noble truth when in the second part of it I'll talk more about it in another talk the Buddha talks about attachment where this attachment comes from this kind of longing to merge so it takes acceptance and courage and great patience on this path on this journey our teacher Seda Upandita has said to us many times that the road to Nibbana the road to unconditioned peace is paved with patience <clears throat> there were times in my own journey when it seemed insurmountable you know not not only then that I told you about but also more deeply in my practice when it seemed totally insurmountable and I always took consolation or some kind of refuge in that pose of the Buddha where he touches the ground with his right hand I'm not sure this pose right here where he touches the ground with his right hand and in that pose in a story that maybe one of us will tell he asked Mother Earth to bear witness to his right to know the truth this was when he was being assaulted by Mara with all the forces of distraction taking him away from his commitment to know the truth there's a beautiful rendering of that which we'll read to you once but he was being forced by these forces of Mara to give up this commitment and sometimes many times in my practice I've wanted to also and because I remember this pose it, it gives me some kind of a deep reverence for my own commitment and so I say quietly to myself I ask the earth to bear witness to my right to know the truth and somehow then I feel connected with all of life for a few moments again so I can go on so this kind of suffering gives us this true commitment this urge to be free and prompts us to let go to make our practice deepen this prompting to let go makes our practice easier in a way we let go more easily our practice becomes easy then easier then so the question for all of us is how do we experience life the temporary happinesses and sorrows 
with an open-petaled heart where we can allow all of this happiness and the sorrow to come and go like butterflies come and go on flowers. How can we do this? Can we do this by just facing by things we like, the kind of opening we like? We have to face even the darkness. Carl Rogers said, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself as I am, then I can change. So this is our journey, which has its own unique voice in each of us, our own voice. And it's trying to tell us the truth, a universal truth. I'd like to end the talk with um, a poem that I really love about a journey from Mary Oliver. And it goes like this. Finally, one day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, cried each voice, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do for yourself, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough. It's already late enough. And a wild night, and the road is full of fallen benches, branches, and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, your own voice, which you slowly recognized that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save your own. So let's sit for just a few seconds. <clears throat> 